0: Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Free Culture Radio. Free Culture Radio neither promotes the use of any drugs nor condemns people for being involved in drugs. To the extent that drug use presents problems for individuals or society, those problems are made worse and more intractable when people who use drugs are treated as others and ignored, stigmatized, and even brutalized. Oregon's Measure 110, the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act, was passed overwhelmingly in the 2020 general election. It's having a tremendous positive impact on the lives of Oregonians. Thousands of people have been helped. Millions of dollars have been distributed to service agencies and treatment providers around the state. People around the nation and around the world are looking to Oregon's experience as they consider reforms of their own drug laws. To learn more, I spoke recently with Tara Hurst, Executive Director of the Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Tara Hurst. I'm the Executive Director of the uh, Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance, and we are the statewide advocacy organization that is focused on implementing Measure 110, really um, ensuring that the needs of communities who've been most harmed by the racist war on drugs are front and center.
0: Of course, we're here to talk about Measure 110, the Drug Addiction Treatment Recovery Act. Loyal listeners will recall that Measure 110 passed overwhelmingly in the 2020 general election here in Oregon. And for the benefit of those who might not be familiar with the details, let's start with Measure 110. Uh, What is it and what does it do?
1: So Measure 110 does two major things. The first one is it removes the unfairly and harsh punishments for minor nonviolent drug offenses and then the other thing it does is it really expands access to life-saving services, um, in, you know, in all of our communities across Oregon and those include harm reduction and recovery services.
0: Part of the appeal of measure One Ten was that more money would end up flowing to agencies and community nonprofits. And those funds are finally starting to flow. Um, Please tell me about the funding. How much is going out? How many agencies and community nonprofits are going to benefit?
1: Okay, so um, $302 million was basically allocated for the this biennium, which is 20, 2021 to the 2023, um, which is how our state does its budgeting. $30 million has already gone out. It went out pretty much right at the beginning of the 21 biennium, which is in June. Um, and we already saw great results from that. The big portion of money we're talking about, a 265 million dollars, is starting to slowly trickle out. As you mentioned, there have been some pretty um, egregious bureaucratic delays. However, uh, we are starting to see that money getting shucked loose. And so, what we're going to see, I think, is about 200 community, 200 plus community-based providers across the state who will be receiving funds to expand services. And these services um, will look different in every community based on what the community needs. And also whether it's culturally specific, linguistically specific, really meeting the needs of of all community LGBTQIA2S plus. And you're, you're gonna see these networks. And these networks, people will start hearing about a behavioral health resource network. The intent of these networks is really that there's no wrong door for people when they need services and that can look like a peer support somebody who's got lived experience has been through the systems understands what somebody um, needs and is really there to help them guide them through and get them connected to those services that they need it can be housing you know it can be transitional supportive housing We know that of course people do better when they have safe, stable housing um, and that really helps with better health outcomes. It's um, also investing heavily in our harm reduction um, providers. These are folks who are on the front lines saving lives every day by um, providing critical public health uh, uh, services including syringe and wound care kits to Narcan, Naloxone, Um, and other overdose um, reversal prevention um, services. And so when we're in such a critical time right now with fentanyl on the rise and overdoses on the rise, which we're seeing sadly um, from a national perspective, really investing in these services ensures that when somebody is ready, they're still alive to be able to get the other addiction recovery services that we're also Um, investing in. We're also the other piece of the network will also be um, we did housing peer supports, harm reduction, and then low barrier treatment options. So there are some folks in our community who don't qualify for OHP um, or Medicaid, if you will, and they will be able to receive services, whether it's residential treatment or whatever um, is necessary and the best intervention for them at no cost. And, and I should say that all of these services are at no cost, including housing, to the person coming in. So it's, it's really revolutionary in terms of um, putting the money into community-based providers who really know what community needs They've been doing this on shoestring budgets. They're actually going to have access to more funds to be able to provide more services and help repair uh, the harms that we have done through this this racist war on drugs.
0: And of course, this is not just a one time thing. the The funds, this two hundred plus million, this is a, this is an ongoing funding stream, right? The funds will continue to flow over the over the years.
1: Um. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so. Assuming the legislature continues to do as the voters intended and the voters wished, uh, we should be seeing about 250 million dollars um, a biennium going towards these these services and so you know the intent really is to ensure that there's a um, sustainability and a process for the for the providers because, when you're always worrying about how you're going to fund the next thing, it's really hard to stand up a program. So we're asking people to stand up these really big innovative programs. We need to make sure that they're able to count on stable funding for the long term. So our hope and our intent is that the legislature will honor what the, what the voters intended and, and will continue to fund this. It is, um, Basically, anything after $90 million in collected revenues from the marijuana tax revenue account will, goes towards these services now. So it's really kind of a good cyclical way to reinvest in our community. In my opinion, one of the beautiful things about Measure 110 is it has really created a robust conversation about what services look like. And there are some people who really narrowly define uh, treatment because it's all they know, right? So residential treatment is the thing we see in movies. It's the thing we see in TV shows. There's even some uh, reality shows about it. And so that's what we know. And so that's what we kind of ascribe to that word. But the reality is, is that, and treatment is great for some. It, it worked for me. So I'm not here saying that tre- residential treatment is not a viable option What we're saying is is that there are so many different interventions that are more culturally specific and responsive. They are more adept to the the individual who's really needing it instead of trying to do a one-size-fits-all and a very expensive one-size-fits-all, right? And so I think that it's really important to recognize that I don't think anybody is dictating what's right and wrong, as long as it's trauma-informed and evidence-informed. And what we're really saying is we should be putting money in the services we know are working. And these are services that are working. We also shouldn't be giving insurance companies, letting insurance companies off the hook. And, And so we should not be covering things that an insurance company would already be covering, right? So this is really the services that are not covered by anybody else, that are really effective and really important to help somebody on the path if recovery is you know if it a fully abstinence only recovery is what they're looking for or just trying to figure out how to um, create less chaos and live a healthy life there's a huge continuum of what people need and what they're looking for and it would be ridiculous to assume that we all need the same exact treatment for an you know for an illness as some of us um say it is when there's not really that kind of a a specific look anywhere else in any other kind of um, health issues. So what we are pushing for is for folks to really open their minds. When you hear treatment, treatment can mean really different things to different people. And it's important to not discount what works for some people and what works actually quite frankly for a majority of people. What we know is, is that when you combine housing, supported employment, peer support services, you have much better long-term outcomes than if you just put somebody in a 30-day program with no supports at the end, which should make sense to pretty much anybody. If I do a 30-day program, but I have nowhere safe to go after, what do you think I'm going to do, right? So it's really about making sure that I have a safe place to live maybe after a treatment program or a residential treatment program. Maybe it's about making sure because we know that Oregon is ranked 50th in the nation in access to these types of services. If I have a wait list, it may be important that I get into safe housing, transitional housing, and have some type of outpatient that and a peer support. It looks different for everyone. So we're not discounting The need, we also need a lot of detox centers, right? Because this is coming off of drugs and alcohol is really dangerous um, and and leads to a lot of deaths. So there's a huge system of care that we are lacking in Oregon. Measure 110 is here to really try and build up this section of that care, which is non-Medicaid reimbursable services that are critical for folks who are looking to either just save lives, and or get onto the path of recovery.
0: This is my conversation with Tara Hurst, Executive Director of the Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Oregon State Senate's Interim Committee on Health Care held a hearing on June 2nd. One of the subjects they discussed was preventing opioid-related overdoses. One of the invited witnesses was Haven Wheelock, a public health expert, harm reduction advocate, and the Drug Users Health Services Program supervisor for the Portland nonprofit Outside In. Chair
2: Peterson, members of the committee, I, for the record, I am Haven Wheelock. Um, I run the Drug Users Health Services Program at Outside In in Portland. It's really hard to follow such brilliant and passionate people. I'm just going to call that out. So thank you to our fellow panelists for setting this up and making my job easy so I don't have to talk about the numbers and the statistics. Um, I've been working with people who inject primarily heroin and methamphetamines, more recently fentanyl, um, for 16 years here in Oregon, for 20 years um i've identified as a harm reductionist and provided direct service to people using substances for 20 years and it's an honor to be here to talk about this even though it's really hard and i'm gonna warn y'all right now i'm probably gonna cry at some point so bear with me um i'm not gonna spend any time really talking about the fact that like all the numbers and stuff people have already done that better than me but i do want to call out that this is not just oregon this is a national crisis 107,000 people died last year of drug overdoses in the United States. So what that means in this hour that we're spending together here today, 12 people are going to die. Just I like just holding like, and those are families. Those are lives. Those are people who were cared for. And I just want to hold that because it is really, it's a lot. Um, and. I wouldn't be a good harm reductionist if I didn't call out that knowing we are 50th in the nation for access to treatment and at the top for access to or for addiction. If we aren't able and willing to scale up support and fund harm reduction services, essentially we are saying that it is okay for people to die until we change our systems. And I don't believe anyone in this room and most people in this state would say they are okay with that. Um, When I started working in harm reduction, I knew I was getting into a hard job. There is a lot of stigma around drugs. The crisis is hard. I got into this work in 2002 because I really, as a naive 18 year old, thought that I was gonna end HIV. We didn't do that. And actually, when we look at our state, HIV rates are going up in our state because of our addiction crisis. We've got a hepatitis C epidemic in our state that has never been fully addressed by our state. 70% of people who inject drugs are infected with hepatitis C, and Oregon has one of the highest death rates associated with hepatitis C infection. And now we're in an overdose crisis. And this crisis, as we all know, is not new. I remember in 2013 crying to a committee similar to this one because at that time, naloxone, someone like me who doesn't have a medical license was not allowed to have carry or use naloxone, right? It felt like a crisis then, it is worse now. I've never seen anything like what we're experiencing currently in our system. Like, I knew this work was going to be hard. I knew it was going to be heartbreaking. And it is far worse now than it has ever been. Yesterday, yesterday, I spent two hours with a woman who found her partner dead in their tent that afternoon. And she came to me knowing I was someone that would sit with her without judgment and be with her and grieve with her. And... Over the course of that two hours, at one point she showed interest in detox. I called around, we couldn't get her in anywhere. She sat with being suicidal, wanting to end her own life in the grief of losing her partner. And it was awful. And I have to say, it was also awful for me because I knew her partner. He was someone I have worked with for years. He is someone I have laughed with, someone I have cried with, someone I have, like, genuinely enjoyed and am and I'm genuinely going to miss, right? He is someone that I am going to miss seeing on a regular basis. And this these conversations aren't new. They've always happened. It's all. But before before fentanyl really started entering our drug supply, they would happen once a month, every couple months. And now I am doing this every week. There are some weeks that I have called and confirmed death to the medical examiner's office five times in one week. Mm. And it hurts. And I am tired. <laughs> and my staff is tired. And everyone I know who is doing this work and in this fight, we're heartbroken, we're grieving, and we're tired. And I generally, genuinely like try and believe, I like to believe I am a hopeful person. I am a positive person. And I have to tell y'all right now, I'm terrified of what's coming. This is not, this is just the beginning of what is going to happen. When we look at what has happened in Philly, in Baltimore, in New York City, where fentanyl has been in the drug supply for much longer than it has been here, we see their overdose rates just continue to climb, right? And our drug supply is changing faster today than I have ever seen anything change, right? I've done this 20 years. I've never seen our drug supply change so fast. New drugs are coming onto the market and new analogs of different fentanyls and different benzos and different like iterations of things are coming on so fast that we don't know what they are and don't know how to give safe messaging to people to keep them safe. And to be honest, it keeps me up at night Thinking about what happens when the new iteration of these really dangerous, illicitly manufactured drugs no longer responds to naloxone. And we're starting to see that with some of the analogs coming out of Canada when we're starting to see these things happening. Like on the East Coast, we're seeing the like these incredibly powerful tranquilizers being mixed with fentanyl, xylazine being an example of. And We're not necessarily, one, we're not monitoring for it yet. So we don't, it could be here and we just don't know. But also like there is going to come a day when naloxone is not going to be the effective tool it is today. And that day keeps me up at night. That thought keeps me up at night. And I don't want to end this with this fear that I hold with, right? Because I actually am really proud of our state for the investments that over the last few years have really been put into our system while we haven't spent the money and scaled it up yet. Like we do have a lot of commitment and a lot of funding coming into our systems to really make some difference, but there are barriers to making that work, right? For example, fentanyl test strips have been mentioned a couple times here. In the state of Oregon, it is illegal for us to give them out. CDC and SAMHSA both encourage the use of these tools, but because of our current drug paraphernalia law, it is not legal to use state funds to purchase them. It is not legal to for folks that aren't running a syringe service program to give them out. So if Representative Graber wanted to give them out off the back of the fire truck, it's not legal for that to happen in our state because they did it's distribution of drug paraphernalia. So one, if I can encourage you to get rid of that and help us out, that would be great. Um, I mean, I do think we need to scale up and expand naloxone to anyone who wants it. Um, that's going to take funding. Naloxone is, you know, we often hear like, oh, get naloxone from free for from this place. Naloxone is not free. Um, the Narcan nasal spray that is designed for lay people to use that is instructed for people who don't have training to use, retails for $150 a box. Um, at government pricing, you can get it for $67.50. Um, so it's, to put that in context, I give out about 60 to 80 Narcan kits a week, okay? Um, and that is with us rationing who we, how much we give to each individual, and being very selective that we only give naloxone to people who use drugs. So if a mother comes to me and was like, I just want it because my kid is a teenager and teenagers are sometimes like trying drugs. I'm not funded to be able to supply that to her. Um, and luckily, you can get it in the pharmacy, which is great. But if we're going to scale up naloxone, we need to figure out how we're plan to pay for it because it needs to be budgeted as an item. And the last thing I really think, you know, I think all of that is well and good and all of that is really needed, but I would be remiss to not call out that we need overdose prevention spaces in our, in our cities and in our communities. Um, if you don't know, overdose prevention spaces are places where people can bring drugs that they've acquired in the community and use them with trained professionals. Who are able to respond quickly in the event of an overdose um there's something the first ones opened in Bern in 1983 83 i was two when the first one opened just calling it out um there's over 200 operating globally um in all of that time the nearly 40 years no one has died in one of these centers no one has died in these places, overdoses are easy to reverse if there is someone there to do it. But what happens is with our current protocols, people are using alone. They're using in places to hide so they don't get caught because they're ashamed of their use. Giving people a place to use drugs will save lives. Um, The first legal overdose prevention site actually opened in New York City in November of last year. So in the last six months, as of yesterday, they just put out a press release 300 overdose events have happened in their space and have been successfully reversed by their teams. These are interventions that work when we're sitting in this intersection between a housing crisis where people don't have homes and don't have anywhere to go. They're using in public, they're using in places that they don't want to use. And frankly, other people don't want them there either. And I dream of the day I can bring people in to my space and say, you are welcome here. I, I will help you if you need to. Um, and this is legislation that we should be considering if we really want to make a difference. I think getting the zone into the world is crucially important, but it will not have the same impact as providing pay- people a safe place to use. Um, I can go on and on about this. I love talking about it because it is my heart and it is my passion. Um, But I'm going to get off my soapbox and answer any questions you all have for us.
0: That was Haven Wheelock, a public health expert, harm reduction advocate, and the Drug Users Health Services Program Supervisor for the Portland nonprofit Outside In, testifying before the Oregon Senate's Interim Committee on Healthcare on June 2nd on the topic of preventing opioid-related overdoses in Oregon. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Welcome back. Now, any closing thoughts for the listeners? And again, folks, we've been speaking with Tara Hurst, Executive Director of the Health Justice Recovery Alliance.
1: I just think that people need to um, be flexible and patient. And, And that's really the key to this. We are in the midst of making a huge change to our law, one that is so long overdue. We need to have the patience that it requires to really allow it to do the work um, and to trust the folks who are on the ground doing this work every day, um, that they really do know what services their community needs. They understand what their business needs to um, be successful and success in this case means serving folks and meeting them where they um, where they are at. So recognize that all of these things take time and and we're really excited we have a lot of hope that this is something that will be really life it's already been life-changing for a lot of Oregonians and and it will continue to be we just need people to um not get impatient and decide that there's something else a new shiny object this is this one is is great um and and just kind of keep with us
0: That was my conversation with Tara Hurst, Executive Director of the Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance. Find them on the web at healthjusticerecovery.org. And that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. I want to thank my guest, Tara Hurst, from the Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance. A big thank you to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. Free Culture Radio is a volunteer production for Community Radio syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Theme music for Free Culture Radio was composed and performed by Tom Nickel and Four Dimensional Nightmare. Free Culture Radio is available as a podcast or direct download. Find links at the website kboo.fm slash freeculture. Free Culture Radio is on Facebook at facebook.com slash Radio. Please give it a like and you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Doug McVeigh. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long.